imagined. Okay. So, like my mom said, uh, I was six years old when they brought Josh home, and I was seven when Caleb came home. Um, I can still replay in my head them, like, walking down the um, in the airport or whatever and seeing my brothers for the first time and remembering, like, that was, like, the best moments of my life. It was just so amazing. Um, and then as a result of that and my brothers, I want to be a nurse in Africa and live in Africa. And um, I've been journaling and praying and had many, like, actual dreams about being in Africa and about orphans in Africa. And then so this past summer in August, we got to go to Africa with my parents and my sister. And uh, walking on the Ugandan soil just really confirmed my dreams and what I believe God is calling me to do. And um, there was just so much hurt and brokenness in Uganda, but so much love. And um, the people were just so willing and wanting to hear about Jesus. Um, and they have almost nothing. And but they were still willing to sacrifice for us. Um, the two things that stood out to me there in Uganda um, was their love of worship and the beauty of the children. I really began to enter into worship there and not just want to be waiting until it's done. Um, <laughs> and uh, the children were so beautiful there, and they really touched my heart. And um, so basically... My parents' obedience to God back in 2002 is the reason that I went to Uganda this summer and the reason that I feel God calling me to be a nurse in Africa. Um, the two biggest things that are beginning to impact my life are worship and beginning to obey God wherever he calls you. Um, there's a song by Chris Tomlin, and that's how I want to live my life. It says, where you go, I go. Where you stay, I stay. When you move, I move. I will follow you. And just one more thing. Um, praying that you want to just want what God wants and asking him to break your heart are not prayers that you want to pray lightly because he will answer them and he will surprise you and amaze you in the way he does. And it is, it's not easy, but it's the best. And when you are believing the love of God for you and that his grace is sufficient, you don't know. We don't know where God's heart is going to take us, but we know that he will take us, he will keep us, and that his grace is sufficient. So, thank you. That is awesome. Thank you, Wheelhowers, just for your honesty, for your openness. Um, and even, too, if you're new at Crossroads, this is just so exciting, is that this is a story of one of many. Like, we really are a church that has a heart um, for the motherless, for the fatherless, for adopting and that is just so exciting, so good for a church to have that. Um, for those of you guys who don't know me, my name is Brandon Hurth. I'm actually attempting something I don't know if Crossroads has ever seen before, but this is a podium kind of thing that I'm going to use. Um, <laughs> but my name is Brandon Hurth. I work with the students uh, here, the middle school, the high school students. Some of you guys may remember also I preached a couple years ago. I'd like to think that I learned a few things. Um, one of the things that I did was I started off and I was talking about conflict, and I don't know why, but I thought it'd be really good to crack a bunch of jokes about hot dogs at the beginning. Some of you guys remember it, but for years now, people that have been at that sermon have come back and been like, oh, you're the hot dog guy. You're the guy who made all those jokes about hot dogs. And as much as I'm excited that some people remembered the sermon, that's not really what I wanted remembered. And as flattered as I am, as flattered as I am to have a nickname, Hot dog guy really isn't it either. So um, I'm going to start off a little different today. I'm just going to start off with a challenge for you guys. 
It's real easy to hear a sermon. It's really easy to read a passage of scripture and to think, man, I wish that my wife was hearing this, or I wish that that annoying guy at work or my son was listening to this message. My challenge for you today is to really hear the Sermon on the Mount, hear the Beatitudes for your heart. What's God saying to you today? So with that said, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. While you guys are turning there, we've been kind of journeying through Matthew as a church, and we're getting to Matthew 5, and this is Jesus' first big teaching in the gospel. This is his first big um, kind of spot where he really downloads a lot of information to his disciples, and we shouldn't be surprised if you've been coming to Crossroads for very long that it's about the kingdom of God. So... Uh, That said, let's go ahead and stand up, and we're going to read from Matthew 5, starting in verse 1. It says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside, and he sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. So as we're looking at this passage, we're going to look at three big areas today, okay? Told you it's about the kingdom of God. We're going to be looking at the people of the kingdom, the king of the kingdom, and finally the mission of the kingdom. The people of the kingdom, the king of the kingdom, and finally the mission of the kingdom. Let's go ahead and pray. Father... Your word is is sharp. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. And God, I pray that your word would just pierce through any any dull ears, any dull preaching. God, that your word would just speak to our hearts. God, open our eyes to what it looks like to live in your kingdom. Open our eyes to what kind of a king it is that we serve. God, we need you. We're a desperate people. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. So we're going to look at the people of the kingdom first. Like I said, we come to Jesus' first teaching, and it's about the kingdom of God. Matt Westerholm was here last week, and so he kind of teed this up for me. He talked about how the kingdom is all in this passage before it, and then he said, we're looking for this word. It should be blessing should be in there. Blessed should be somewhere in this passage. And then he indicated it's coming this week, chapter 5. Blessed is all throughout this passage. Um, Abraham, this is kingdom of God. Abraham in Genesis 12, he's blessed by God and he's blessed to go out and be a blessing to all the people. No, or not even Noah, let's, let's go all the way back. The very first words that God said to mankind was, and he blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. So as we step into this kingdom, God is gonna be showing us what it looks like to live a blessed life. 
It's probably a little different than the books on the shelf that you've seen with a similar title. Um, But to put it more simply, this passage, this whole section is really just going to show us what a model citizen of the kingdom looks like. It's not eight separate people, a little teaching note for you guys who are just like grammar nerds and you love things. Like if I say Jaron, you're like on the edge of your seat. Um, All two of you out there. There's a little teaching point here. It's called an inclusio. And so when he starts off, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus says, blessed are you when you're persecuted, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. It's, it's not like Jesus got all the way to the end and he's like, oh man, what am I going to say for this one? How can I bless you? Oh, maybe they won't notice. I'll just reuse the first one because that was a while back. It's not. He's actually using a teaching point to show us that these are eight Uh, descriptors of the same person. It's not eight different people. It's not like spiritual gifts. This is one person here, okay? It's also not the spiritually elite. I think some people read through this and we think, oh, this is describing the the Billy Grahams, the Jim Elliots, the Hudson Taylors, the Rod Van Sulkemas of the world. This is every one of us in this room. If you're in Christ, this should be a description of your life. All right, so when we look at this picture of the blessed life, though, It's kind of, when I first read it, I thought of like, it's almost like a baseball player trying to strike out, or a musician player, or a musician, I should say, trying to play the wrong note, or a president trying to lose the election. Like, it just seems upside down. It seems a little backwards. We live in a world that wants strong. It wants assertive. It wants entertaining. It wants rich. It wants all attributes like that. And yet, we see that the kingdom of God is described so differently. And that should point us to the fact that it's describing not only how we're to be, but how the kingdom is itself. It's an upside-down kingdom. It's backwards from the world and what the world thinks, but it's exactly what we need. It's exactly what the world needs. So we're going to jump in now with the first beatitude. Blessed are the hardworking. Blessed are those who lead countless people to Christ. Blessed are the Bible readers, drink avoiders, church lobby loiters, for those are the people of God. Like, I joke, that's not at all what it says. If you don't have a Bible, that's not in there, okay? (laughs) But I, I say that because I really think that's how a lot of us think it should be read. Like, it's the people who go out and they're doing a ton for the kingdom. They're leading all kinds of people to the Lord. They're up front in the crusade, and that's who the people of the kingdom of God are. And it's not described that way. The kingdom is so much more concerned. Jesus is so much more concerned with who you are than what you're doing. And we're going to see that throughout this passage. So maybe I'll read how it really reads right now. It says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Now, poor in spirit isn't exactly a title that we throw around a lot. Like, I don't hear many guys are like, oh, my wife, she's just so poor in spirit. Or your kid comes home from the first day of school and you're like, how's your teacher? oh man, he is great. He is poor in spirit. Like it just oozes out of him. We don't use this word at all, pretty much. So I started looking up, what are some descriptions? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? And almost unanimously, everyone I looked at came back to kind of the same idea. And so just to paraphrase that, what it really means to be poor in spirit is it's a recognition that before God, spiritually, you are powerless and bankrupt. Let me kind of repeat that again. That when you look at the debt that you owe spiritually, you recognize that you're powerless and bankrupt to repay it. If I were to say, it's like you're spending hundreds and making ones, that would 
kind of get the idea, but it's not even really close. If I said it's like you trying to pay back the national debt by working at McDonald's, it would get a little bit closer, but even that would still miss what this passage is really saying. This passage, see, if you work at McDonald's, you're still putting something in the account. It's not very much, but you're still putting something there. Maybe in a trillion years, you could actually pay off that debt. But Isaiah nails it on the head. Isaiah chapter 64, he says that our best, our righteous deeds, our good deeds, the thing that you would think, that's how we're going to pay back God. If at the end of the time, our righteous deeds are going to outweigh our bad and we're going to get in. Isaiah just blows that up and he says, our righteous deeds are filthy rags. They can't save you. You have committed a crime, every one of us in this room. We've rebelled against our king. We've rejected him, and the punishment is death. The verdict's out, it's done, and your best efforts to try to amend it with your good deeds, I'm sorry. They're just not cutting it. And that's what this passage is talking about. It's the person who's realized that, and they become a beggar on the streets of heaven, realizing that it's only going to be grace that gets them through. A.W. Pink puts it this way. He says, what is poverty of spirit? It's the opposite of that haughty, self-assertive, and self-sufficient disposition that the world so much admires and praises. It's the very reverse of that independent and defiant attitude that refuses to bow to God, that determines to brave things out and says with Pharaoh, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? To be poor in spirit is to realize that I have nothing am nothing, and can do nothing, and have need of all things. Does this describe you guys today? Have you felt the weight of the debt that you owe? Have you felt the impossibility of perfection? You can't work away the balance you owe. You can't punish yourself enough. I think that's a lie that a lot of us live in, too, is that we can somehow just self-hate it out of us. That we can somehow punish ourselves enough for the bad that we've done that it it wipes it away. Self-hatred never leads to forgiveness from the other person or for yourself. It leads to, to darkness and shame, not grace and light. It doesn't mean also that you consider yourself worthless. The Bible doesn't say that we're worthless. God talks about the value that we have. Poverty of spirit is a recognition that you are completely helpless to change your spiritual condition. You're completely at God's mercy. This is even seen in what you receive. It says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's a consequence. It's not a reward. As if God owes you anything In no sense do you merit the kingdom of God by what you do or by what you are, um, or by what you do, I'm sorry. But what we are is we're just self-aware. We're just aware that we're just desperate before God. We're just down on our knees just saying, God, I need you. I can't do it. I can't be good enough. I can't earn my way out of this hole that I've dug. That's the entry point to Christianity. That's the entry point to the sermon. It's nothing in my hands I bring, but simply to your cross I cling. Okay, that's the first beatitude. Only seven more to go. All right. Um, Only kidding, guys. I, I looked at this, and I started looking at some of my favorite preachers. And I looked at Jonathan Edwards. I looked at Martin Lloyd-Jones. I looked at Spurgeon and said, how in the world do you preach this much of a passage at once? And none of them did it. And so if Spurgeon couldn't preach all of the Beatitudes at one time, I'm not even going to try to attempt that, okay? So we're going to look at four. 
The second four, I see some head nods, I see some amens, probably kind of just silently being muttered. Um, We're going to look at four. The other ones come out of those four, okay? Out of the first four. Also, just a note, Neil and Rod preaching like chapters at a time. That's awesome. I don't know how they do it. Um, So I'm kind of at awe at that. So we're going to stop after the first four Beatitudes. Let's look at the second one. It says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. This is another thing the world just doesn't prize, right? Mourning, it's just not. It's not something that we value. But what it really is, is it's the emotional counterpoint to being poor in spirit. It's the emotional response to a true poverty of spirit. Um, Let me give you a little misconception too. People read this passage, and this is not a call that Christians need to be forlorn. This is not a a call that says that in your friend group, if you're a Christian, you need to be the Debbie Downer of the group. Like, wah, wah. That's just not what this is, okay? It's a proper or natural response to seeing who you really are and where you really live. Okay, let me repeat that. It's the natural response. When you really see who you are, when you really understand where you live, mourning takes place. It emotionally just starts to come out. It's when we see who we are. It's just what we were talking about, the poverty of spirit. When you look at the balance sheet spiritually that you're running, and you see it's all liability after liability after liability after liability, and you look at the asset column, and it's blank. You begin to mourn. You begin to realize that spiritually, you're powerless and you're bankrupt. It's where we live. It's a recognition that it's not just you that's in that state, but it's your society, it's your family, it's your friends, it's your nation that's in the same spot. You guys want an example? I mean, in the last week, last month, I suppose, we had people crawling over embassy walls and murdering people. In the last year, we had someone just walk into a packed-out theater and just start opening fire on people. In the last 15 years, we saw people hijack loaded planes full of people and fly them into buildings just full of people just going about their everyday life. In the last hundred years, we saw the entire world almost at war with itself twice. We saw a man rise to power who slaughtered millions of people simply for being Jewish. The world is broken. It's not right. And when you understand that, you begin to mourn. Does this impact you guys? For us, I think it takes, for a lot of us, I should say, I think it takes something dramatic in our own lives. It takes the loss of a loved one. It takes being diagnosed with some kind of serious disease before we realize the world isn't as it should be, that it's broken, it's in need of a savior, that things still just aren't quite right. And it leads us to mourning. The best example I can think of is Isaiah, who in chapter six, he sees God. He sees the Lord, and his response is, woe is me. Maybe this is why Rod ducks down like this. Um, woe is me. Like, for I, I'm undone. For I'm a, a people, or I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. He realizes that he has no right to seeing God because he is a sinful man, and he lives among a community of sinful people. When's the last time that I, when's the last time that you really mourned over your sin like that? I'm talking gut level, wrecked to the core. I am undone before a holy God. I have nothing to bring to the table. When's the last time you mourned like that over your church's sin? 
your city's sin, your neighborhood's sin. Even pagan Nineveh, pagan Nineveh, I think, gets it more than we do. A person who truly understands how much God has blessed us and how much we have exploited, manipulated, and perverted his gifts for our own benefit has no other recourse but to weep and mourn. Yet that person, they're going to find their comfort in Christ. That person will be comforted. Next beatitude, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the land. What, what comes to mind when I say names like this? Alexander the Great, Napoleon, Julius Caesar, the Egyptian pharaohs, all of these people possessed massive amounts of land in their time. They're all strong, they're all confident, they're aggressive, they're maybe slightly sadistic, but I think these are the type of people that we expect are going to get the land, are going to get the promotion, are going to get the girl. I mean, after all, like God favors the bold, right? He favors the courageous. Yet here again, we see Jesus just flipping that on its head. He says, blessed are the meek, for there who's going to inherit the land. And I want you to remember where Jesus is, okay? He's up on a mountain. Got it. But he's in a land that's controlled by Rome. Caesar is considered like a god during that time. And if that's not enough, he's got Herod, who is almost second to none at that day. And he's ruling over everyone. And he goes up on the mountain. He's like, guys, guys, you know who's going to get the land? And they're like expecting Caesar. They're expecting these people. He's like, it's the meek. The meek are going to inherit the land. Uh, Jesus here is basically saying that we need to envy the meek. Envy is another word for this blessed thing. A lot of people translate it that way. And so we need to envy the meek. I mean, can I get an amen from the introverts out there? Notice the old cliche. Meekness is weakness. Is just flat out not true. Meekness doesn't mean you don't have the power. What meekness is saying that I have the assets, I have the ability, I have the resources, but I'm choosing not to use them because I'm going to pursue the humility that God has called me to. A meek person doesn't feel they need to champion their own cause because they have a God who's going to deliver on their behalf. We're going to talk a little bit more about meekness um, later on in the sermon, but before we go on, I got one more note too. It's the word inherit. They're going to inherit the land. Notice it's a gift. It's not a reward again. It's something that God's just going to bestow upon them. And even the word land there should trigger things. Your Bible might say earth. It could very easily be translated land. Um, the kingdom of God, God's people in God's place, experiencing the, present, the blessing of God's presence and rule. Like, that's a phrase that we have said over and over again. I keep waiting for someone to have a tattoo with it or something like that to come into the office and be like, yo, kingdom of God, I got it. Um, No one has yet, but you've heard it dozens of times, I feel like, every month. God's people in God's place experiencing the blessing of God's presence and rule. This is God's place, the land right here. He's referencing that back too. So let me just ask you guys, how are we doing on being meek? Do we have a patience to wait on God like Israel did before they ever entered the land? Or are we still trying to aggressively pursue, force, or otherwise manipulate our way into getting what we want? Next beatitude, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst 
after righteousness, for they will be filled. Truth be told, I think in this culture, we hunger and thirst after almost anything except righteousness. Attention, entertainment, love, sex, status, power, significance, knowledge, things like houses, cars, boats, clothes. We hunger and thirst after all the wrong things. Notice even the word choice, hunger and thirst. It's things that everyone in this room has felt. It's things that everyone of us feels every single day. It's things that point to our very dependence as creatures. They, they show us that we have need. We hunger, we thirst. You don't believe that? Try going without water for a week. You need it. You're dependent. Yet my, my assumption, based on my own life, based on the lives of others that I see, the world that we live in, is that we're so full of eating the junk food of this world that I don't even think that we at all have an appetite for righteousness. I think we've taken a chair and we've pulled it right up to the buffet table and we just kind of sat there right there and we're just grabbing up stuff. Like, I'll take a huge plate of accolades from work and I'm just going to gobble that down. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to eat it up. I'm going to take uh, an extra helping maybe of attention from the opposite sex. Or in our culture today, you know, I'm going to grab a big bowl of pornography. That's what, I bet you that's going to be really good. I bet you that that's going to satisfy. And we're so full of that junk We have no room for the banquet of righteousness that God has prepared. Moreover, we're so full of it that we don't have room for the Beatitudes. Be meek? Are you kidding? At work, they prize my aggressiveness. They prize what I can do for them. Recognize my poverty of spirit? Why? When these members of the opposite sex make me feel so special. I don't need to become a beggar. They make me feel like I could do anything. Mourn? Why? I can turn on my computer and self-medicate any pain away, right? I don't need to mourn. We're so full of these temporary fixes, this junk, that we have no room for what God has given us. And I mean temporary when I say it. I know guys who are so goofed up on pornography that they can't have a relationship with a real woman. They think every woman either needs to look like or act like a porn star. I know men's marriages that are crumbling because they constantly choose the screen over their wife. I know a guy who I went to seminary with. I got the first call of a guy who's already lost his pastorate because he can't shut the computer off at night. And it breaks my heart. I know people, men and women, who are so successful at work. They're so successful, and yet they live lives crippled by fear because they're only as good as their next venture. I know people attractive men and women who sit in front of the mirror for hours every day, who are terrified because they're getting older and their looks aren't what they were and they need that attention from the opposite sex to be okay. Guys, we're to hunger and thirst, but it's not after that junk. It's after righteousness. We're called to more. And we're promised that we'll be filled. Okay. It's the end of the four Beatitudes. And I just want to be real with you guys. I, I read these things. I studied these this week. And at the end of the day, what I walked away was, was frightened. I was frightened. I realized how inconsistently and how seldomly these describe my life. I'm just not living up to these the way that I would love. And Tim Keller... He's a pastor at New York City. 
uh, out, out there at Redeemer Presbyterian. Can't recommend him enough, but he told an example. I listened to one of his messages, and it really captured what I was feeling. It captured why I was feeling what it was. And so I just want to share that with you guys. It's about a girl, or a woman rather, named Virginia Stem Owens. She was a teacher, a uh, Christian writer, and she was teaching uh, literature at a state school. And she had all these kind of assignments. I want you to read this and give me an essay on it. And she decided one year, I'm going to assign the Sermon on the Mount. Most of her students had never heard of it. Most had never read it. And she got back these papers from these students, and she was shocked. And these, the reason that she was shocked was they hated it. These students who had never heard the Sermon on the Mount before, they absolutely hated it. Here's a couple quotes. I did not like the Sermon on the Mount. It made me feel like I have to be perfect, and no one is. Second one. The things asked in this sermon are absurd. To look at a woman like that is adultery. To be angry or insult someone like that is murder. Those are the most extreme, stupid, inhuman comments I've ever heard. But I think these students, in some ways, are kind of light years beyond a lot of us in this room. You see, what her conclusion was, was that finally, after 2,000 years of over-familiarity with the sermon, these students were able to hear it the way that Jesus intended it to. That if we really understand the Sermon on the Mount, it's terrifying. It should send shivers down our spine. We're so used to it. It's like tasting your own cooking or something like that, where you just can't be objective because you're too close to it. Finally, these students had gotten far enough away that they heard Jesus' words. And that's really the bottom line, guys. Unless you understand that the Sermon on the Mountain, the Sermon on the Mount is a terrifying thing, you really don't understand the sermon. It takes people who think they're winning, who think, oh, I'll just put my good deeds here and my bad deeds here, and as long as my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, I'll be fine. And it crushes them. It takes the serial comparers, the person who is saying, well, I'm not as good as this person, but I'm better than this person, or at least I'm above average, or at least I'm average even. And it smashes that paradigm to smithereens. The Sermon on the Mount, I mean, the Beatitudes right here are just the opening part. And I want you guys to hear this. Trusting in your good deeds is like trusting a spider's web to catch a boulder. It can't do it. Trusting your good deeds to save you is like trusting your t-shirt to stop a bullet. It can't save you. Your good deeds, I'm sorry, they can't save you. The Sermon on the Mount, the rest of it, I said the Beatitudes are just the opening. The rest of the Sermon on the Mount goes on to say things like this. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If someone takes you to court and they want to sue you for your shirt, go back home and give them your jacket also. And, uh, Let's see here. Oh, if that's not quite enough, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Be perfect? That's just chapter five, guys. There's chapter six and seven also. Like, are you feeling the weight of the sermon yet? It's a terrifying thing. It's so scary. And only when we understand how terrifying is it, are we ready for the next part. And the next part is the king of the kingdom. The king of the kingdom. If I was king, guys, be honest with you, I would have wiped the floor with all of us. If I do something special for someone that I love, right, and I sacrifice for them, and I do something that I think is really great, and I don't even get a shred of human decency back, if I don't get any kind of positive response back, I get disappointed. I get hurt. And if I'm not careful, I get angry. 
And if I did what God did, where he formed man, right? He made man. He breathed life into him. And he said, you know what? All of creation, I'm giving it to you. I want you to rule it underneath me. I want you to rule and subdue the earth, Adam. And if that's not enough, on your birthday here, since I just created you, I've got another gift for you. Unlike anything ever done ever, I made you in the image of God. I made you in my image. The God who created everything, every one of you guys, were made in his image. And we say, like Adam, that's not enough, God. I don't want to be made in your image. I want to be you. I want to be like you. I'm not going to rule underneath you. I want to just rule. And we reject him over and over again. And if you guys did that, I'd wipe the floor with you. I'd start over with a grateful humanity that realized how gifted they were. But praise God that I'm not king. Praise God that you're not king. That we serve a king who is the ultimate beatitude. And I say that intentionally. Christ is the ultimate beatitude. As much as these beatitudes describe us, they describe him. All the more. Until we see that Christ has become all of the elements of this. This sermon's just going to seem like moralism. And I want to walk you through some of these beatitudes. The first one, your king, your king, he leaves the riches of heaven and becomes poor so that you can become a rich co-heir with Christ. Philippians 2, not considering equality with God something to be grasped, he humbled himself and became nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. The second beatitude, Jesus not only mourns over Jerusalem, not only mourns over Lazarus, but he gets in a garden and he weeps and he mourns and his sweat becomes like drops of blood because it's so intense. And that next morning, he weeps on a cross as the weight of your sin, as the weight of my sin is laid on his bloodied back. Your king is meek. He allowed himself to be led like a lamb to the slaughter. Like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not cry out. Your king silently submitted himself to a humiliating and painful death. Not because he didn't have the power to step out of that. Not because he couldn't stop it. But because he was meek and his love for you knows no bounds. Your king not only experienced physical hunger and thirst which will blow your mind in and of itself. The God of this universe submitting himself to hungering and thirsting. But he was tempted in every way and he chose righteousness over self-pleasure. He pursued righteousness. He hungered and thirsted after it so that we could be filled, not with our own righteousness, not with our own filthy rag righteousness, but with Christ's righteousness. And you want to look at the other beatitudes that we didn't cover? Verse 7, he is merciful to those he encounters. He doesn't treat us according to our sins, but according to his steadfast love. He is pure in heart, verse 8. And without sin, stain, spot, wrinkle, blemish, anything else you want to put, he's pure. Peacemaker, how about taking all of estranged humanity and restoring us to God by paying the debt in full himself? Persecution? He's the epitome of being persecuted for righteousness' sake. Though they found no sin in him, they crucified him. He endured the most unwarranted persecution so that you could experience the most unwarranted grace. All those secondary clauses, 
about us being filled, about us inheriting the, the earth, about us being comforted. We get all those. God blesses you with all those. But how does he do it? Christ becomes the first things. He becomes poor. He becomes meek. He mourns so that you can inherit the earth, so that you can be comforted, so that you can be filled not with your own righteousness, but with his. He is the ultimate beatitude. This is why we're not puffed up. This is why we can become meek. This is why we can mourn over the state of the world because it cost him everything to restore it. That's why we're just poor beggars. We realize the kind of riches and restoration needed and we realize that we can't do it. Only the death of our king could do it and he did it. Thus in Christ, we find not only our example. He's not just an example that we then say, oh, we got to follow and just be like him. He is that. But he's also our motivation. Our king did this for us. He did it. So you don't have to because you could never do it well enough. You don't aim at becoming those eight characteristics in your life. Like, I got to pull up my bootstraps and I got to try this week to be meek and next week I'm going to focus in on mourning and after that I'm just pursuing righteousness. You lift your gaze beyond just trying to become those things and you look at the ultimate beatitude. You look at how he sacrificed for you. You look at how he loved you and that changes your heart. And suddenly you start becoming those beatitudes. This is why it's not moralism. This is why it isn't just a list of to-dos. It's because you look at the king and it transforms you. Suddenly getting money back from that guy that you lent it to doesn't seem so important, right? You become merciful. Suddenly you no longer view yourself as rich or bigger than you really are, but as just that poor beggar because you know that through Christ you've been elevated to the status of being a son or daughter of the king. You begin to live out the Beatitudes naturally, That leads us into the final little section, and it's going to be brief. That's just the mission of the kingdom. We're blessed first to be a blessing. This is what makes us distinct. This is what makes us salt. This is what makes us light to the world. It's that we live with an understanding of who our king is. It's the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is you know that you live every second of every day in the presence of your king. Every second, you're always with him. And under the right teacher, the students grow. Under the right, um, under the right boss, productivity swells. Under the right president, not going there. It's too close to November. But you get what I'm saying. Under the right leadership, under the right king, we thrive. We look at his character. We look at his accomplishments. That's why they hang championship banners in places like this. It's because we see who went before us and rose victorious, and it motivates us. That's, if God had banners like that, let me just be cheesy for a second. It'd be like a boxer, and it would say things like, uh, defeated sin, TKO, total knockout. Defeated death, total knockout. Defeated Satan, total knockout, right? That's the banners that we look at. Those are the banners that motivate us. That frees us up to enter the fight. It's like David and Goliath, when we see their champion slain, we can then run down off the hill. We can then enter the fight. We can then engage in the world. This frees us up to say, I want that righteousness, that righteousness that defeated all those things. I hunger for it. I thirst for it. In a dry and weary land where there is no water, I long for you. 
I can't believe I'm free to exchange my filthy rags for your righteousness. And then we take this message into the world. We take this message as salt and light, being countercultural, being all these things that are upside down in the world's eyes because it's exactly what they need to hear. It's exactly what they need. That's our message to the world. And we get to partner with Christ in bringing it. What a gift. So in conclusion, let me just ask you guys a couple quick questions. If you guys are already members of the kingdom, you're already Christians, let me ask, do you adore this king? Does this just set your heart on fire to know what he did for you? He's called you out of death while you were still a sinner, while you were still powerless. He became poor. He became the ultimate beatitude that you might become rich, that you might become a co-inheritor with him. That's what frees us up to be poor in spirit, to mourn, to become a peacemaker, to hunger and thirst, not after our own righteousness, but after Christ. And now he's called you to partner with him, to fulfill the promise to Abraham, to fulfill the calling of Adam, to go out into the world bearing God's image to a needy, needy place, to free people from the rat race of trying to be good enough, of building a tower like Babel, trying to reach God with our good deeds, where God just knocks it down and says, you can never be good enough. And we have the good news. You don't have to be because he was. Are you the salt? Are you taking that message to your street corner, to your work, to your schools, where people desperately need to hear it? They're still trying to be good enough. And for others, maybe that's where you find yourself right now. You came in here and you're saying, man, I am trying to be good enough and I'm constantly working to be better. I'm constantly comparing myself to others. The Bible's really clear about that. You can't. You can't be good enough. And when you begin to see the Sermon on the Mount as the terrifying thing that it is, that the standard, you thought it was down here and you were doing okay and then you realize it's perfection and that it's way up past the ceiling even. And you can never be good enough. There's rest. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If you want to know that rest, that freedom from trying to be good enough, come up. Come talk to me. Come talk to Greg. We got elders around. Maybe they can come up. Um, but don't leave here without knowing that there's, there's freedom from that. Let me pray. God, I thank you that in you there is freedom. And I feel like I could say that a hundred times because it's such good news that I don't have to earn it. I don't have to be good enough because I never could. God, thank you for paying it all. Thank you for being the ultimate beatitude for us. Thank you for giving us rest. God, help us to walk in it. Help us to be salt and light. We love you. In Jesus' precious and holy and humble and poor in conquering name. Amen. Family, could you stand to your feet? We're going to take an offering. Ronnie, we're going to get off the page from the beginning. We're going to sing, Spirit of the Living God, fall afresh on me. Break me, mold me, fill me, use me.
figure this out here. All right. May you guys live lives knowing that you're in the presence of your king. May you be reminded that this king came poor, meek, and mourning, that you might be raised up to the status of sons and daughters of God. May you cherish what you have received, knowing it cost him everything. And may you, God, make them the salt and light in their communities, bringing the kingdom of God to their street corners. We'll see you guys next week.